Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Robert Haddad on the topic The Brothers and Sisters of Jesus. Who were they? This August 2009 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St. Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Robert Haddad is the current head of New Evangelization at the Catholic Education Office of the Archdiocese of Sydney. Yes, this is an important question for all of us as Catholics because the perpetual virginity of the Virgin Mary is a defined dogma of the Church and I'll read that out to you later in a bit more detail which council said it and what words they put it in. Um, in the order of hierarchy of apologetical issues between Catholics and Protestants, this isn't in the top three, but it's certainly always there, somewhere in the top ten. For me personally, it was one of the biggest issues that I had to grapple with, grapple with in that time in my life when I first had a serious conversion when I was 15, when I went with my Baptist friend Stephen to um, the Billy Graham Crusade in May 1979. And for the next, say, six to six and a half years, I associated a lot with Baptists in the Punchbowl Baptist cricket team that played in the B and C division, which is the competitions that the church's competitions in New South Wales. There was no Catholic team then. And later on at Sydney Uni Law School, when I used to associate on and off with a fellow named Andrew, who was an evangelical Anglican and a member of the evangelical union there at, at um, Sydney Law School. I was also at times frequenting the Newman Society. But in that period, that six to six, seven year period, I had a lot of uh, doubts, um, questions, unresolved issues, and this was one of them. This is one of the clearest and the biggest one for me. Uh, I remember very well in 1980, I was in year 11 and it was still only about a year or so after my conversion experience um, at the Billy Graham Crusade. And I used to attend on and off. At this time, it was quite frequent. The inter-school Christian fellowship meetings that occurred at lunchtime once a week at Punchbowl Boys. And it was, this was staffed, you know, by evangelical teachers that worked at Punchbowl Boys. There was a Mr. Knight, who was probably, I think, a Lutheran. There was a Mr. Batten, who was an evangelical Anglican. Um, and a couple of others that I forget their names. Now, on one occasion, I was just sitting there. I, I was daydreaming a little bit. I wasn't concentrating on the topic at hand. And I began to... I didn't pick up the Defender Faith, it wasn't written then yet, but I, I began to um, flick through a copy of the Bible in English. It was a 1974 edition of the Good News for Modern Man in English. And by some, if you call it coincidence or probably providence, I just opened it at this chapter of St. Matthew and I read this. Where did this man get this wisdom and these deeds of power? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not this is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where did where then did this man get all this? And they took offence at him. That's Matthew thirteen, 
verses 54 to 57. Earlier in Matthew 12, we read this. 12.46. While he was still speaking to the crowds, his mother and his brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. And there are corresponding verses identical to these in the Gospel of St. Mark. When I read that, that chapter 13 quote, that specifically named four brothers and mentioned sisters in plural, I sat there and almost like broke out in a cold sweat. I panicked. Because for me, it was so clear, so obvious, Jesus had brothers and sisters. Therefore, the Virgin Mary did not remain a virgin all her life. And I knew enough of the Catholic faith to tell me that this seemed to completely and clearly contradict Catholic teaching on this point. The Catholic Church, for me, seemed to be wrong. What was the answer? I had no answer. I didn't say the Catholic Church was wrong. I just said the Catholic Church seems to be wrong. How are they going to get out of this? Unfortunately, during, at the end of that same lunchtime session, as I was walking out worried about the perpetual virginity of the Blessed Virgin Mary, this Mr. Batten fellow had pinned down another guy or this guy had come up to Mr. Batten right at the end of lunch and asked him something about Mary. And as I was walking past, I overheard the conversation where Mr. Batten said, look, this thing about Mary as Queen of Heaven is an exaggeration. Mary was a holy woman just like any other woman. And then he added this comment about statues. I don't understand why the Catholic Church has statues. It's so obvious in the Bible that that is condemned. Anyway, this was a triple hammer blow for me you know, as I was walking out of that classroom. The reaction that I had was completely emotional and illogical. From that point, that day onwards, I had such a lack of confidence in Marian beliefs or Marian dogmas as we know them to be that I stopped praying the Hail Mary. I used to say one Hail Mary a day. Okay. I used to say one Hail Mary a day, but after that, I would not say the Hail Mary for at least another six years. That was my response. It was my lack of confidence in this regard. Okay. Well, what is the answer? Well, as the years went by, about six years later was when I had my real conversion, my full-on conversion into the Catholic faith, uh, after discovering the answers to so many of my issues. I was at a friend's place, his name was Fabian, and upstairs he had in, in his bedroom this old book. It was, it was a very old book, it was literally falling apart. You know, the acid was eating it, the cover was broken. It was called The Question Box. And this, was a, this book is still available online. If you go to Amazon, do a Google search, Question Box, Father Conway. And you'll get plenty of copies for, for a very cheap price, less than $5 each. This book was 417 pages, and it was in a question-answer format, because Father Conway in his parish in New York in the late 19th century literally had a question box outside his parish where he invited all and sundry to, to put a question there, any question they wanted, and he promised anyone who put in a question that he'll supply an answer, a written answer, in the same box a week later. Well, eventually, like Father Flada did a year or so ago, 
this Father Conway had all his questions and answers compiled into one book, which made in this edition a 417-page volume that I read in about two and a half days. And it was a my road to Damascus, so to speak. I, I, this book answered every doubt, uh, confusion, um, weakness that I had about the Catholic faith on any issue, you name it, whether it was the papacy, whether it was the Eucharist, whether it was the mass, whether it was statues and images, whatever it was, and particularly on chapters on Mary, it helped me enormously. But these books, this book plus others I read later like Faith of Our Fathers, other classics, they gave me a lot of arguments in support of the Church's teaching of Mary Perpetual Virginity. Arguments we'll look at later, arguments that related to, you know, what do we mean by the word brother and sister? How do we understand it in the original Greek or in the Aramaic language, in the culture of that day in the Middle East? And gave me multiple examples of how brother and sister was very broad, very general in meaning. It could mean your cousins of any degree. It could have meant also an uncle, a friend, an ally, a member of the same tribe, etc. It didn't just mean children, brothers and sisters, was not restricted to just children of the same parents, etc. It was much broader. Well, this helped me a lot. And I read, you know, you know that St. Jerome in the early church, you know, in the late 4th century had to deal with this issue in answer to a fellow named Helvidius, who raised objection to the church's teaching at that time that Mary was a perpetual virgin. And I thought, well, this is all well and good, you know. But anyway, I didn't have yet that conclusive answer that was so clear and based firmly on Scripture. This is what I really wanted. I wanted a knockout blow answer. Okay? Well, anyway, it came by, in a sense, by accident, if you believe in accidents, I don't, but it came in 1990, actually. So ten years after this ISCF class at lunchtime, I was preparing a lesson for my year seven and eight religion classes at St. Charles. Uh, I just thought that they needed apologetics at the age of 12 and 13, you know. So, went against all the, you know, what we consider good teaching practice in high schools these days. Anyway, but I was putting this lesson together and while I was writing it, the pieces began to fall into place. And what I was discovering when looking at various verses in scripture, that there are all these pieces that were all loosely there, all apart. All they needed was someone to put them together. And you, it's like a jigsaw puzzle. And you have this clear biblical answer, and I basically said, Eureka, I found the answer that I'm looking for. That's hardcore, based on scripture, clear knockout answer. What I was doing really was discovering what St. Jerome was arguing, because I never read his work against Helvidius. If I'd read Contra Helvidius, as it's called formally, well, I would have had it there. It would have been uh, um, obvious for me years earlier. But I felt really wonderful that I had put this together. And from there on, well, I felt invincible on this issue. Anyway, this is the answer I'm going to put forward tonight. Now, I've done this talk many times before, but I'm going to do it slightly different tonight because I've actually learned some other facts in the last two weeks. I presented this talk just two weeks ago at St. John's 
Green Acre, the Melkite Church. And uh, so I've had to develop it even since then. There was another passage, another couple of passages that worried me too, before I give you the answer. And, uh, and, and one of them is in the first chapter of St. Matthew. This is the most, one of the most famous verses that seems to contradict the church's teaching on marriage perpetual virginity. Matthew chapter 1, verse 25. He, that is St. Joseph, took his wife, but knew her not until she had borne a son, and he called his name Jesus. Actually, in other versions of scripture, it says uh, her firstborn son. So Matthew 1, 25 proposes a double problem. He knew her not. Now we know what that means, right? St. Joseph did not have any sexual relations with Mary until she gave birth. So it implies that after giving birth to Jesus, St. Joseph knew her sexually. And the term, until she had born her firstborn son, the term firstborn to the uninitiated implies first of many. Okay? Now, that was the specific argument that Helvidius was raising. 125, Matthew 125 was clear. Firstborn meant first of many, in his view. There's another verse that worried me a lot. And the irony is that this verse is where I start with our answer. But when I read it, again, this is, when you're uninitiated in Scripture at all, and you know, you know, I don't mean you have to know it in Greek to be initiated. I mean, that would be more than helpful. But if you're just someone, an enthusiast, keen, you just want to read the Bible, all well and good, but if you're reading it coming out of left field with no instruction, no background, n- no church teaching, no guiding footnotes, I mean, you're going to find, you know, problems and you're going to, you know, have r- raise real questions within your own mind. Okay, it's Galatians 1.19. And I remember reading this myself and, you know, breaking out into another half-cold sweat. When St. Paul here says, But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Well, you know, there it is. What more do you want? You know, James is the Lord's brother. The Lord has a brother. It must be the James that St. Matthew mentions in Matthew 13. I mean, he's one of the brothers, and he's actually the first one mentioned. James, Joseph, Jude, uh, uh, Judas, Simon, put them in the correct order. Okay? So it seems to confirm the English reading of Matthew 13. See, all this goes heavily against you know, what the Catholic Church says formally. And here's what the Catholic Church says formally on the issue. Okay? We all know it. You all hear it from a very young age. Virgin Mary. Virgin before birth, during birth, and after the birth of Jesus. Before the, fourth, before the first council of Lateran in 649, Pope Siricius said this in the year 392. Surely we cannot deny that regarding the sons of Mary, the statement is justly censored. And your grace has rightly abhorred it. 
that from the same virginal womb, from which according to the flesh Christ was born, another offspring was brought forth. There's a sense, Pope Sirius, Saint Sirius, says, in no way can we admit that any other children besides Jesus came forth from the womb of Mary. But more formally, Bladder in Council 649 declared, If anyone does not properly and truly confess, according to the Holy Fathers, that the Holy Mother of God, the ever-Virgin and Immaculate Mary, in these latter days, properly and truly conceived of the Holy Spirit without seed, namely God the Word himself, who was born of, the, of God the Father before all ages, and that she bore him incorruptibly, her virginity remaining inviolable, even after his birth, let him be condemned. Okay? So it's clear there that I mean, the, all the dogmas uh, seem to be planted there. Mother of God, ever virgin, Immaculate Mary, just doesn't mention the assumption. Okay? But it's clear, it's formal church teaching. So, do Christians have this stark choice? Is it the Bible or the Catholic faith? The Catholic faith or the Bible? This is what many people seem. I wouldn't imagine how many millions have been persuaded to leave the Catholic Church on this issue. Maybe not the one knockout punch that immediately gets someone to abandon the Catholic faith, but perhaps the beginning of them leaving the Catholic faith. I couldn't imagine how many millions. Alright. The general Catholic responses here, I've already just briefly outlined, that brother and sister, really, in these ancient languages, in Aramaic, there was no separate word for cousin. And in Greek, there was a separate word for cousin. There was a word for brother and a separate word for cousin. But in Greek, the word for brother could also mean cousin. Okay? That was, that's the general argument that's out there that the Catholic Church uses to tell us who the brothers and sisters of Jesus were. That yes, they were her cousins, they were his cousins. The children of someone else, another Mary. Okay, that's what the Catechism says. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says that. They are the children of the other Mary. That's one of the Gospel writers who calls her that other Mary who went to the tomb on the morning of the resurrection. Okay, we'll see there are multiple Marys at the, at the cross of Christ in any case. Okay, but we want more, don't we? It's easy to say, okay, that these brothers and sisters are the cousins of Jesus, are children of another Mary, but we want to prove it. We want clear biblical evidence in support of it. <clears throat> the Orthodox have attempted a solution which one can respect. Uh, but my, what we're going to put forward tonight, I think, would radically supersede it, make it redundant. And the Orthodox, that's the Eastern Orthodox. The Eastern Orthodox solution, because they also believe emphatically in the perpetual virginity of the Blessed Virgin Mary, is that the brothers and sisters of Jesus are really the children of St. Joseph of a previous marriage. Oh, a, okay. Possible, but where's the proof? You know, I'm being hard line here. I want proof. 
Okay? For people who are, call themselves biblical Christians, whether they're fundamentalists, evangelicals, or Pentecostals, or whatever, you can't just give them something that's not grounded clearly in Scripture. All right. Well, I'm going to construct a couple of families tonight. Let's, these, are, this is, these are the options here. What we're saying is that let's put the Catholic family here. The Catholic Holy Family. What is the Catholic Holy Family? Joseph, St. Joseph of course. The Blessed Virgin Mary and Jesus. The Catholic Holy Family. Have I got that correct? Good. The Protestant Holy Family as argued from Matthew 13. Joseph, Mary, Jesus, James, Joseph, Jude, Simon, and sisters. How many? We don't know. Obviously, it's plural. Let's be generous. Right? One, two, three, four. Just for gender equality. Or maybe five. <laughs> Alright? Five boys, five girls. What's wrong? Uh, there's at least seven children in the Protestant Holy Family. Jesus, James, Joseph, Jude, Simon, and sisters. There's at least seven. Why not ten? It doesn't matter. It doesn't change the argument. <laughs> And we're going to have a look at the family of the other Mary. The other Mary. Now, on face value, there's another reason why here the Catholics have got it wrong. The Catholics are into big families. They're against contraception. <laughs> this one-child policy we oppose around the world. We don't want 1.1, 1.2, 1.3 birth rates. This is the 1.0 birth rate. This is the real Catholic family. I mean, get serious. Come on, as my friend Stephen used to say to me, my Baptist friend, look, Robert, what do you expect? They were married. What do married couples do? They end up having children. This is normal. Okay? What do you expect? Joseph and Mary are good, holy people. They'll have plenty of children. Okay? Now that's the presumption. The presumption is in favour of that conclusion. That's the presumption. Okay? Alright. Now, these are the verses that construct the Catholic response. This is the jigsaw puzzle here. Galatians 1.19, Matthew 10.2, Mark 3.16, Luke 6.14, Acts 1.13, John 
1925, Mark 1540, what else do we have? And a new one we can add, Luke, sorry, no, Jude 1, 1. Okay, now, is there any more? Not according to this. Now, obviously, when you're thinking, when someone shows you one verse like Matthew 13, see what the problem is for Catholics? Even if they've got the correct answer, it's a lot of work to prove it. It's a lot of work to show it. How many Catholics off the top of their head can say, okay, now the answer is in starting with Galatians 1.19, then we move to Matthew 2. You know, I only put this in writing two nights ago. I mean, off the top of my head, I'd start with Galatians 1.19 and I have to dig these up. Yes, I knew these two and this one only. These three I have to look up. These, this one I just added in the last two weeks for good reason. You'll see why soon. Okay? Now, now let's look at these verses. Now, these verses are listed here because each one of them either gives us new information or confirms information we already know that's going to help us confirm what is the Holy Family. Or, more to the point, who the brothers and sisters of Jesus are. Who are the parents? This is the issue. Who are the parents of James, Joseph, Jude, Simon? When we can establish who their parents are, the issue is settled. Okay. This is more an argument tonight about who the brothers and sisters of Jesus are. It's incidental, and we will go into it. It's not a comprehensive defence of the perpetual virginity of Mary, because there's more arguments we need to deal with. I'm dealing with just who are the children that are called brothers and sisters of Jesus. There might be other children of Mary that are not mentioned, but that's only a side issue, okay? probably think, what am I talking about? But the, my point here is really to identify who these boys are, who their parents were. Now this Galatians 1.19 that used to be my problem is actually the beginning of the solution. And what happens here, the background to it, is that in AD 37, St Paul has knocked off his horse on the road to Damascus and he's converted to Christ. Now he goes to Damascus, he does a bit of preaching, his life is threatened, then he escapes. Where does he go for the next three years? He's out preaching there to the whole world. No, he's not. He goes into the desert of Arabia for three years. And by the way, Arabia is not Saudi Arabia. It's the Roman province of Arabia at that time, which is the Sinai Peninsula. Okay? That's why, Arlen, just to change the topic here for a moment, you sent me earlier this year, and my brother Gabby as well, this slide presentation on where is the true Mount Sinai. It was this American fellow, I forget his name, Wyatt. Wyatt is arguing that, that the true Mount Sinai is in Arabia. Saying, he said that's Saudi Arabia, North Northwest Saudi Arabia. Well, yes, it is in Arabia. But when Galatians was written, because that reference is in Galatians. Well, I think it is. Uh, St. Paul is talking about 
Arabia in his day, which is the province of Arabia, the Sinai Peninsula. Okay? Now, now back on this issue. It's after three years in the desert, it's around the year AD 40, and St. Paul comes out of the desert. He's the first desert father, you could say. Okay? He's in communion with God, detached from the world, engaging in purifications, prayer, you name it, whatever it is, we don't know. And he comes back to Jerusalem. Now, to put you in the picture here, Jerusalem AD 40, the dispersion of the apostles has not yet taken place. James, the son of Zebedee, has yet to be martyred and there's no dispersion yet. Okay? So you're going to find apostles in Jerusalem. And you do. St. Paul finds two. This is what he says here. I'll put it in the context. Go back one verse. Verse 18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas. That's the Greek transliteration of the Aramaic Kepha, which means rock, which means Peter, St. Peter. Okay, for anyone who has doubts that Peter was the rock, there's St. Paul saying that. And remained with him 15 days, because St. Paul is getting a rundown on what is the true nature of the gospel, what is the heart of the gospel message. He's running it by the leader of the church to verify exactly what Christianity is. So St. Paul was a Catholic, because he's going to the Pope for clarification. He was probably the first person to put what we call a dubium to the Pope, a, a clarification, a query. Okay, but now listen to this. Now, who is he seeing? Peter, Cephas. He's an apostle. I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles. Why does he say none of the other apostles? Because he just saw Peter, who was an apostle, but he didn't see anyone else of the same rank. That is one of the twelve, or that's right, one of the twelve, except. James, the Lord's brother. So, he saw a James, the Lord's brother, who was a apostle. Say it again, who was a apostle. Now, apostle here is of the same rank as Peter. I mean, I'm not equating the quality between Peter and the others. We mean... James is an apostle, one of the twelve. St. Paul is not saying, he's not referring to those on the next periphery, like one of the 72 or whatever. He said, I saw Peter, Cephas, I saw no other apostle. Peter was not one of the 72, he was one of the 12. He saw. He meant to say, I saw none of the other 12 except James, the Lord's brother. And of course he saw James, the Lord's brother. Because this James is James the mess. Okay? There are two James, and we'll see that in a minute. He is the permanent bishop of Jerusalem. That's why he saw him there. It's no shock to find James in Jerusalem. He was the bishop of Jerusalem. That was, he was told, this is your flock here. Okay. Now, James is an apostle. The Protestants want to argue that point. They don't want to say this James is one of the twelve. They need to say he's not one of the twelve. 
Because to say it's one of the 12, they're going to get into big trouble when you start digging. So I have read serious Protestant literature, academic textbooks, which argue that this Jane was not one of the 12. He was one of the, say, 72. Nonsense. The whole context negates that. If I saw none of the other apostles, why are you saying other apostles to repeat myself? Because Peter was an apostle. So he's talking about apostles of the same college of Peter, one of the 12. Now, when we want to identify this James, who he was, he is the Lord's brother. Why is he called the Lord's brother? Well, we presume, if we want to argue for the Protestant Holy Family, he is this James, the Lord's brother. His next oldest, the next oldest, number two in the family, whose father is therefore Joseph. If this James is the Lord's brother, as in the narrow sense, then Joseph must be his father. But let's look at Matthew 10. So that is James the greater. Oh, we haven't yet. I've said who it is, but I, I need to prove it. So let me prove it before I can make, tell you who it is. I've already said who it is. I've said he's, I'm arguing that he's James the Lesser. Okay. okay? But where's my proof? Okay? I've got to prove it. All right? But whether, we'll see. Now, when we go to Matthew 10.2, we come across a list of the apostles. We're going to go through all four lists of the apostles because there are two different each one of them have a different order of the apostles, except that all four of them, by the way, St. Peter's listed first. But we have bits of different information given in these lists. Here we go, Matthew 10.2. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee. And John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Joseph, no, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. So we have two James here. We have two James. These are the apostles. There are two Jameses. We have the James, son of Zebedee, and James, son of Alphaeus. And we have next to James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, who is the other Jew. Now he's called Thaddeus to distinguish him from the traitor Judas. But notice, in this list, there are three, the brothers are listed together, Simon and Andrew, James and John, James and Thaddeus. But we don't yet, we haven't established yet that James and Thaddeus are blood related. I'm jumping ahead of myself here. But notice the problem here. This James, the Lord's brother in Galatians 1.19 his father is either Zebedee or Alphaeus, not Joseph. 
His father's not Joseph. So how can he be this James in this family, if this family exists? He couldn't be this James. So why is this James in Galatians 1.19 called the Lord's brother? This is the mystery here we need to solve. Okay. Alright. What does now Mark 3.16 tell us? Does it tell us anything different? Maybe not. Because because these two Gospels, one or the other, was dependent on one or the other. Okay? The scholars are still arguing. (coughs) What does Mark 3.16 say? Okay. Simon, whom his surname Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, whom his surname Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Canaan, and Judas Iscariot. So there's no new information there. It just confirms what Matthew says, no surprise, because there's dependence between these two Gospels anyway. That is, one author used another Gospel to help write his Gospel. Okay? There's no problem in believing that. All right. Now, then we come to Luke 6.14. Luke 6.14. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon... Okay, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. So, that's distinct from, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Now, this version gives us one bit of extra information. Now, let's not call this the family of the other Mary yet. Let's call it the family of Alphaeus. Okay? We know that Alphaeus has a son. James is son of Alphaeus. Oops, that's wrong. James is one of is a son of Alphaeus. Okay? Now, he is the less, because everyone knows Alec that James, the son of Zebedee, is the greater. Okay? No one disputes that. So this James, who is an apostle, who is the son of Alphaeus, is James the less. Okay? James the less, in brackets. Now, Luke 6.14 gives us some intriguing information that Judas, that is Thaddeus, Jude Thaddeus, is related to James. But this version, most versions of the Bible say that Jude, Thaddeus, is a son of James the Less. Now this I discovered a couple of years ago and I thought thought this is going to throw my argument here a bit. Yes and no. If it is, it doesn't matter. If Jude, Thaddeus, is a son of James the Less, then he's another cousin of Jesus, 
just once more removed. Okay? But actually, I'm going to argue against this translation. That translation, I say, is wrong. What, what they're doing with the translations, the translators of the RSV and other like versions, the term Judas Jacobi is the way it appears in Luke 6.14. Judas Jacobi, meaning the tradition for Hebrews was to identify someone by reference to their father's name. So Judas Jacobi is Judas James. So the translators of the RSV and other like version therefore assume that Jude Thaddeus is a son of Jacobi, a son of James. Okay? That's what I'm arguing. The Dewey Reams, however, which I used to use but then stopped using but now going back to, the Dewey Reams translates Luke 6.14, Jude, the son, sorry, the brother of James. The, the, the translators of the Dewey Reams look at Judas Jacobi in 6.14 and say, okay, that's not, there's a, that's not identifying Jude's Thaddeus as the son of James the less. It's, I, it's using another Greek usage where Greeks would identify someone by reference to their father, but sometimes by reference to their oldest brother. For example, if the father might be dead, then they refer to a younger brother by juxtaposing his name with his oldest brother's name. So the, the translators of the Dewey Reigns translate Luke 16, Judas Jacobi, as not Judas son of James, but Judas brother of James. And they're right. And there's a knockout blow that tells us they're right. Jude 1.1, which I only <coughs> discovered <coughs> last week. So the RSV has a problem because <coughs> there's a contradiction clearly there in the translation. A good Muslim picking it up would put RSV to shame. Listen to this. The letter of Jude, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Everyone knows this is Jude Thaddeus. The RSV in Jude 1.1 identified Jude Thaddeus as brother of James, as does the Dewey Reigns. But back in Luke 16, 6.14, translates Judas Jacobi as son of James. We can't be both. You can't be both. It is. Jude is the brother of James. Jude Thaddeus says it. He is the brother of James. Brothers. So, if he's the brother of James, his father is Alpheus. Okay? Alright? He's the brother of James, his father is Alpheus. Because James, the less, is the son of Alpheus. No problem. Okay. Then we go, well, Acts 1.13 doesn't add anything, 
because it's written by the same author of Luke. Okay? It comes after Luke, obviously, historically, and Luke is just you know, copying the same list that he wrote in, in his Gospel and giving us again in Acts 1.13, which says, just to, read it, to complete the whole picture, <coughs> with the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. So they translate Judas Jacobi here again as Judas the son of James. And then they contradict themselves when they go to Jude 1 1. Okay, Dewey Rems is right. What a surprise. Okay. Alright. So, what's the next issue here? Okay. So, we come to John 19 25. And it gives us some really interesting bits of information. This is the crucifixion scene. Crucifixion scene. St John was writing it. Why the credibility to write it? He was there. He was the only apostle who was there. Now, I think I want to write this one out. I read it, then I write it out. So the soldiers did this. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Big deal. What does that give us? So what do we have in John 19.25? We have standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, Mary, mother of Jesus. Number one, cross at the cross of Jesus. Then we have another woman, and his mother's sister, mother's sister, mother's sister, and who's that? Mary, the wife of Clopas. Mary of Clopas. <clears throat> and then we also have Mary Magdalene. This is strange, isn't it? It's strange because you've got two Mary, you've got three Mary. John identifies three Marys. There are four, because Mark's Gospel will give us a fourth and some other information. What's strange here? Who could tell me? Mary, mother of Jesus. Also, Mary's, um, Mary's sister, Mary of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. What's so strange about that? The sister, yeah. Sister of Mary is named. The sister of Mary, mother of Jesus, is named Mary, wife of Clopas. Two sisters and both of the name Mary. Now, in every talk I've ever given on this topic in the past, I've argued that this sisterhood is another example of using the word sister to designate two women who are probably cousins. We're still open to believe that if you want. 
Okay, so at this point, we have Mary, mother of Jesus, and her sister Mary of Clopas. They're not really sisters. They're not two Marys born of Anne and Joachim. The other Mary, Mary of Clopas, is a cousin. But you see, the word sister is generic. It's broad. It includes cousin. That's what I've argued the last 15 years. Fair enough. But actually, we'll see there's another reason why they're called sisters. And it's from the historian Hegesippus. Now, Hegesippus was the first church of historian after St. Luke. St. Luke gave us the Acts of the Apostles. The next historian of the church is Hegesippus, who in the mid-2nd century goes around the Mediterranean world and visits the major churches and writes a history. In his history, Hegesippus says that St. Joseph and Clopas were brothers. Okay? Hegesippus says that. Now, you can argue that Mary, mother of Jesus, and Mary of Clopas are sisters because they're really cousins. But Hegesippus, and you have to trust him, he's around, writing around the year 140. He's privy to traditions and that have been passed on orally in the churches that we've lost. He records that these two men were brothers. Now, the point is, this is what I want to find out. This is what I emailed that question overseas to. What is the proof that Alpheus and Clopas are one and the same man? And the Catholic Encyclopedia is the best information I've got at the moment. Because this is also critical. The Catholic Encyclopedia 1913 edition says that Clopas and Alpheus are the same person as these different words are merely different transcriptions of the same Aramaic word, Halphi. So, Halphi, I'll put it here, is the original name, and according to the Catholic Encyclopedia, Alpheus and Clopas are just different transcriptions of the same word. They are the same man. Now, trust me on that at the moment, and I'm still trying to get more on, you know, conclusive proof of that. Once I've got that, everything will be perfectly fine. So, according to Hegesippus again, Joseph and Alpheus are brothers. Their wives are Mary and Mary. Joseph, we know, is married to Mary. Clopas is married to Mary, the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Alpheus, therefore, has a wife called Mary. These two Marys are sisters because according to Hegesippus, their husbands are brothers. So that makes Mary of Joseph and Mary of Alphaeus sisters-in-law, which the scripture just summarises as sisters. Okay? So what we're constructing here is the family of the other Mary. The other Mary, so far, is married to Alphaeus, who's a brother of St. Joseph, 
who's the foster father of Jesus. Okay. And they, we know so far, they have two sons, James and Jude. Okay? That's where we're up to. Then we go to Mark 15.40. And Mark is recording the same event. Who's at the foot of the cross? And gives us another little bit of extra information. Mark 15.40. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene. Let's see where they agree. Mary Magdalene, yes. And Mary, the mother of James the Less. Mary, the mother of James the Less. Right? And of Joseph. 1540. Read it again. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Less and of Joseph. Alright? And Salome. Oh, Salome's at it. Whose first name was Mary. And so we have, foot of the cross, Mary, mother of Jesus, Mary of Clopas, Mary Magdalene, Mary Salome, why is Mary Salome there? She's married to Zebedee, who is the father of James and John. So John's mother was there at the cross. John's mother, blood mother, natural mother, is at the cross with him, which makes it even more interesting why our Lord said to St. John, behold your mother, when his mother was already dead. It's a different type of motherhood. You see, how would Salome have felt? She's the mother of John, yet Jesus says on the cross, Behold your mother, this Mary, not this one. It says something interesting, doesn't it? Really? Okay. Now, it's looking interesting, isn't it? What about... What does also Hegesippus tells us? Hegesippus tells us something that's entered the history books. It's from tradition. Is there another brother that could perhaps belong to the family of Mary and Alphaeus? Sorry, that sounds like a cartoon there. Hegesippus says, yes, there is another brother. And And this brother was the second bishop of Jerusalem. James the Less is martyred in AD 62 by the local Jewish leadership. He's succeeded by his brother. According to Hegesippus, the second bishop of Jerusalem reigned from AD 62 to AD 107 and was the bishop that led the Christians out of Jerusalem during the Jewish War of AD 66-70. Hegesippus identifies the name of that second bishop as the brother of James the Less and his name is Simon. Simon is the brother of James 
the last second bishop of Jerusalem, according to Egisthemus. That's what he mentioned, isn't it? Now, what do we conclude here? We conclude, if I'm a Protestant, I have to make this conclusion. That Joseph and Mary had four boys named Jesus, sorry, five boys. Four of them were called James, Joseph, Jude and Simon. At the same time, I must now admit from the Bible, as a Protestant, Bible-believing Protestant, that Joseph had a brother, or Mary had a sister, the brother being Alphaeus, the sister being Mary, that also had four boys named James, Joseph, Jude and Simon. But if I am to make this admission as a Protestant, I'm drawing a really long bow. That there were two families who had the same name for their mother and four of the boys had the same names. But I must admit as a Protestant that these, that Jesus took his disciples from his cousins and not from his own brothers. Now, that is too far-fetched to be realistic. Too far-fetched to be realistic. The reality is, is that what we've constructed here is a relationship between two families. The Catholic family, Joseph, Mary and Jesus. Joseph had a brother named Alphaeus, or whatever, it doesn't matter. Mary had a sister named Mary. And they are first cousins of Jesus, their brothers, so these James, Joseph, Judas are first cousins of Jesus, they're called brothers simply because that was the nature of the language at that time. In that language, brother included cousins, their, uh, their brothers, their sisters-in-law, they're called brothers because they're really just cousins. You'll find them in the Gospels, hanging around Mary. Mary is travelling with them because her husband at this time is dead. And Jesus is in, in, in his public ministry. And if Mary is to travel around, who is she tra to travel around with? Not by herself. She travels around her nephews and her nieces. And this is the solution here. This is the more reasonable solution. This one is drawing too long above to be, re to be accepted as realistic. Two parallel families with the same name for their mother and the same name for their boys. Now, just to go on a little bit further... that impression, the Catholic Encyclopedia doesn't say that when when looking at Hegesippus, what Hegesippus has to say. Okay. Uh, but, so, I mean, would it really matter? It doesn't matter, it just makes the cousins 
further, one step further away from Jesus. If Alphaeus and Joseph and Joseph were first cousins, say, then these James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon were second cousins to Joseph and third cousins to Jesus. Okay? That's what happens then. But if Alphaeus and St. Joseph were brothers, then these James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon were the first cousins of Jesus. If the two Marys are sisters because they're cousins, then these children are third cousins in relation to Jesus, rather than first cousins. But either way, the word brother was broad enough to include cousins of any degree. But it's looking like when you combine Scripture and Hegesippus that we're dealing with first cousins, who are the children of Alphaeus and Mary, the other Mary, as Scripture calls her, when when going to the tomb on Easter Sunday. And... um, they're first cousins because Alphaeus and Joseph were brothers. Now some of the, I just want to turn it around here and, and show perhaps one more. Oh, yeah, flip the photograph. Yeah. Probably what I'll do, I'll use this space here. I want to write out more clearly uh, one, well some of the counter arguments here. I just, the Protestants who realise this Catholic argument want to focus again on Mark 15 and they read it as follows now I'll, I'll have to rush because we've only got about 20 minutes to go I'll just reread it again verse 40 there were also women looking on from afar among whom were Mary Magdalene Mary the mother of James the younger and of Joseph and Salome No, that's not the verse I want to read. I want to read John 19 again. John 19, 25. It says here, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, comma, this is a Protestant interpretation. They identify one extra person. They go, standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, comma, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So what they try to do, they don't, they try and separate, and he's Mary's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, to try and say that Mary the wife of Clopas was not Mary the mother of Jesus' sister. Okay, by putting in that comma there. Well, the reality is, in the original text, there were no commas. In these ancient languages, there were no commas. And the natural flow of the verse is, you have, uh, standing by the cross of Jesus, where his mother, comma, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clovis. Okay? I'll just repeat that. The reason we want to incorporate the two, Mary, the wife of Clopas, as being... Mary's sister. Well, Protestants want to separate Mary's sister and Mary, the wife of Clopas. Because if Mary, the wife of Clopas, is not Mary's sister, then the argument that the children of Mary and Clopas were Jesus' cousins falls apart. Okay? Alright, just some other points before we finish. Um... Yeah, I want to respond to the, the Matthew 1.25 points, if you can remember. 
And just to read it out to you again. Matthew 1.25 says that Joseph had no marital relations with her until she had born a son, or her firstborn son, and named him Jesus. Well, St. Joseph, St. Jerome had to deal with this argument, the word until. Does until imply that St. Joseph did know Mary sexually after the birth of Jesus? It appears to be the case at first reading. But St. Jerome gives many examples of how the word until is used in the Old Testament that certainly you cannot imply that the event in question did take place. For example, in Genesis 8, 6, verses 8, sorry, Genesis 8, verses 6 to 7, Noah sent forth a raven, which went forth and did not return till the waters were dried up on the earth. So you read that in our English and you'd say, oh, well, the raven returned after the waters dried up. No, what it, it never returned. Okay, just to show that again. Did not return till the waters were dried up. But the raven never returned. Well, what the author is trying to say is that the, the, the raven was sent forth but never returned at all. From the time, for all that time they remained on the ark, it never returned. Yeah. Another example. Isaiah 46, 4. God says, I am till you grow old. So that, does that mean once you grow old, God no longer is? You know, I am till you grow old. You know, once you're old, I no longer exist. Silly, you can't say that. What the author is trying to say, that God is eternal. He will outlast you. Man is mortal. Then we have another example. Samuel 2 Samuel 6.23 Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no children until the day of her death. So does until therefore mean that she gave birth to a child the day she died? She had no children at all. So that, and the author there is only intending to say that for the, from the day of her birth to the day of her death, she had no children. Another one. One Mac of his 5.54. So they went up to Mount Zion with gladness and joy. These were soldiers. And offered burnt offerings because not one of them had fallen till they returned in safety. So does that mean that soldiers died in battle after they returned safely? No. It's just the author intends to mean that from the time the battle started until they returned home, no one fell at all. Okay. What about the classic one from the Psalms where God speaks this, Sit on my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. So does that mean once the enemies of Christ have been crushed, he no longer considered the right hand of the Father? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. No. Okay. And it's the same thing here that the author of St. Matthew is just trying to make this point. He did not know her till she brought forth her firstborn son, meaning... St. Joseph was not responsible for the conception of Jesus. 
So Matthew's trying to defend the conception of Jesus as being a work purely of the Holy Spirit. He's not intending to say that anything happened afterwards, just intending to argue in favour of the incarnation conceived by the Holy Spirit. And this is what the early Protestants themselves believe. The, it's interesting, when this debate is raised, it's necessary to quote Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, because the vast majority of Protestant people would be shocked to know that they also held to the perpetual virginity of Mary. Here are the Sola Scriptura founders, the Sola Fide founders, who, Bible-believing, who you know, founded the Reformation, and they wrote the following. Here's, here's sorry, here's John Calvin on Matthew 1:25. There have been certain folk who have wished to suggest from one, from this passage, Matthew 1:25, that the Virgin Mary had other children than the Son of God, and that Joseph then dwelt with her later. But what folly this is! For the Gospel writer did not wish to record what happened afterwards. He simply wished to make clear Joseph's obedience and to show also that Joseph had been well and truly assured that it was God who had sent his angel to Mary. He had therefore never dwelt with her, nor had he shared her company. Calvin's clear. He believed in the perpetual virginity of Mary. What else did Luther and Zwingli say? It's worth quoting. Luther said, It is an article of faith that Mary is mother of the Lord and still a virgin. Christ, we believe, came forth from a womb left perfectly intact. So the actual delivery of Jesus did not impugn Mary's perpetual virginity. I should give you the references here. That's in Weimar's The Works of Luther, volume 11, pages 319 to 320. The quote from Calvin was from his sermon on Matthew 1, 22-25, published in 1562, late in his life. Luther also said, I am inclined to agree with those who declare that brothers really mean cousins here. For Holy Writ and the Jews always call cousins brothers. That's Luther again. The same Weimar works of Luther, volume 22-23, pages 214-215. Swingley said the following, I firmly believe that Mary, according to the words of the gospel, as a pure virgin brought forth for us the Son of God, and in childbirth and after childbirth, forever remained a pure, intact virgin. That's in the, the works of Zwingli. Work, um, Berlin, 1905. His commentary on the Gospel of Luke, volume 1, page 424. The term firstborn is easy to refute. He, he did not know her till she brought forth her firstborn son. Does not at all imply the first of many. Because Jesus was called the firstborn son as soon as he was born. That was a Jewish custom, that was a Jewish tradition. And when the child was 40 days old, they presented the firstborn in the temple. 
So, you know, when Jesus, so when St. Joseph and Our Lady, as good Jewish parents, are coming to present Jesus, the baby Jesus in the temple, they're presenting their firstborn. He's only 40 days old. There couldn't be any other born yet. Okay? There couldn't be any other born yet. So, you were firstborn, even if you were the only born. Okay? And that's, again, the, Calvin admits that as well. Um, some other points. When they return from Egypt, Jesus is about two or three years old, perhaps. You know, when they escaped to get away from the, you know, the massacre of the innocents ordered by Herod the Great. After Herod the Great dies and his son Archelaus takes over and the Holy Family return from Egypt, there was enough time for other children to be born. No evidence of such. Even more emphatic, when Jesus is lost for three days, how old was he? About 12. No mention at all of other children being involved, you know, in the search or being left behind or being, you know, and, G and Joseph and Mary left their other children to search for Jesus. doesn't say things like that. Nothing. Again, that point I mentioned earlier, the foot of the cross. Our, our Lord is giving his mother, behold your son, into the care of St. John. Well, why do that? If there were other children, you know, if James and Joseph and Jude were other brothers of Jesus, children of Mary, married to Joseph, why leave Mary with St. John? Especially as John's already got another mother there, as I said, Salome. You know, it's a bit of a handful to be leaving, you know, Mary in the hands of St. John if there were other brothers who could have done the job. Okay. Um, there's another argument here that's somewhat convincing, and I'll mention it here. What about the brethren of the Lord who were just six months before the crucifixion did not believe in him? You're aware of that? It says in the Gospels, even his brethren, even his brothers did not believe in him. So that verse tends to argue against what I'm putting here. If, if James and Jude were Jesus' first cousins, according to my argument, and they were disciples, then how, how can they be the same men, the Gospel says here, who just six months before the crucifixion did not believe in him? It tends to perhaps support this view, that they, that they were, this, this James and this Jude, belonging to this Protestant family, and they weren't disciples. Okay. Remember I said, if you're going to hold to the Protestant family, Holy Family, then you must hold that this James and this Jude were not the disciples. Because we know that this James and this Jude, who their parents were, Alphaeus and Mary of Alphaeus. Okay? And so this point seems to support the, the Protestant Holy Family. That the brothers of Jesus did not believe in him, so how they could be disciples. Well, the point here 
is that they were the James and Jude who were disciples who did not believe in him, meaning it was a relative unbelief. They had a wrong belief in the messianic mission of Jesus. And that is even illustrated at the time of the ascension. Even go back to the we'll go forward to the ascension here, as recorded in the Acts of the Apostles, that they are the disciples asked this question. Jesus, is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And meaning that they had the, they still, even at this point, post-resurrection, clung to the view that the Messiah's mission was a temporal one. It was going to, the Messiah would restore, redeem Israel, meaning free it from Roman pagan domination, reign visibly on earth, undisturbed to the end of the world, and Israel under the leadership, the kingship of the visible Messiah reigning on earth would be the light to the other nations. This was a common view of what the mission of the Messiah was. That's why so many did not accept Jesus of Nazareth as being the Messiah, because he didn't fit this preconceived notion of who the Messiah was. The Messiah would be establishing a visible kingdom on earth, a worldly kingdom on earth. And this unbelief that the Gospel writer refers to in the brethren of Jesus were the disciples who were his cousins, but they were disbelieved in the mission that Jesus was actually bringing. They wanted Jesus to manifest himself publicly and reveal to the whole world, to everybody, who he was and his power and his miracles. They are frustrated that Jesus was only revealing himself partially to select individuals and wasn't coming out openly to everybody. Alright. Now it looks like I've covered the main points. Um, some other evidence that's ancient goes to an ancient document written somewhere in the 2nd century AD called the Proto-Evangelium of St. James. And that that's, this is a, um, a quite well-known work that gives some details about the early life of Mary, the mother of Jesus. That she was, as a very young girl, dedicated to the temple as early as the age of three. And girls who were dedicated in that manner um, often made vows of virginity. And some of the commentators here, and I don't have enough evidence to support this to make it a prolonged argument, but St Thomas Aquinas even makes reference to it. That the Virgin Mary, after being dedicated to the, to the service in the temple, had made a vow of perpetual virginity. And that St Joseph was aware of this when marrying her and respected it. And what is that, what evidence could there be in scripture that perhaps supports this view? Well, this is the argument that's normally put forward, that when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and proposed that she was going to bear a son, Mary naturally at first thought that she was going to do that naturally with St. Joseph. And Mary responded, but how can this be since I, I do not know man? Or I have not known man. Yet at this point, 
they, Our Lady and St Joseph were already betrothed. You have to understand the nature of betrothal in the Jewish custom of this time. It wasn't simply, or it wasn't as simple as our engagement. Betrothal was marriage in the Jewish tradition. It was so formalised, so binding, that if you wanted to get out of a betrothal, you had to get a divorce. Okay? You were married. What followed was the public reception, the public celebration and the public reception. But it was not abhorrent or, you know, to, for couples once betrothed to be engaged in normal marital relations, normal sexual relations. But it's clear at this point that Our Lady and St. Joseph, though betrothed, had not yet, because Our Lady said, how can this be? I have not known man. I do not know man. So the betrothal was like a mini marriage, yes. and the consummation was... Mm. I read recently on this, in when I read The Life of Christ by the Abbot Ricciotti, which is a very, very detailed and serious book written in the 1940s, a very advanced book for the 1940s, and he goes into this in some detail. Um, and it's something I picked up many years earlier, reading or listening to other people explain this. And Abbot Ricciotti, in his life of Christ, confirmed this. Um, so, Our Lady in St. Joseph, in theory, could have had sexual relations once they were formally betrothed. They were actually living together, right? I, can't, I don't know if that's the case yet. Mm. Does a couple live together? Yes and no. It, it could have been, it could not have been. Okay? Now, my point here is that they were betrothed, but obviously nothing had happened yet. That could be the basis of an argument that Mary had or had made a vow of perpetual virginity, and St. Joseph was obviously respecting it. It could be. I'm not saying it's a conclusive shut-and-case argument. I'm not going to base this argument on that point. Okay? But some people do develop that thing, develop that argument. Well, it would be obvious if she says, how could this be, I'm a virgin? I mean, you're engaged to someone, you can have relations with him and have a child. Isn't that obvious? Yes and no, because we don't necessarily in the modern time appreciate fully what, it, what betrothal meant in Jewish customs. Um, for us, normally for Christians who are living and practising their faith properly, being engaged is equivalent to a betrothal, but that doesn't entitle you to be engaged in sexual relations before the public um, formal wedding ceremony. What so, I mean is, like, they are scheduled to be married publicly, so they can have relations after they're publicly um, married. Yeah. So isn't that the, the but that wasn't the case yet here with St Joseph and Our Lady. They had been betrothed, but they hadn't yet had the formal public reception or, you know, the public uh, celebration of it and reception. Is there any indication of the length that a betrothal usually takes? Uh, I can't remember offhand. I'll, prob I'll probably go back and reread Ricciotti and what he says here. He might give some indication, but I can't remember him saying there was any fixed times to it. I've written this a year. A year? A year, yeah. Yeah. I've that too. Yeah. 
But what I meant, Robert, is like um, I, when I first read that verse, I thought that was uh, what's the problem? I mean, later on, you will be married. Later on, naturally, you're going to have relations. Later on, you mm. have a child. So what a what a question to ask. What a thing to say. That how can this be? I do not know, Matt. You're already yeah. engaged. Yeah, later it's, when you have kids. It's Mary's question. Our Lady's question of the angel seems. Um, out of place, mm. why is she asking when you know, the angel said, You know, you're going to conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Jesus? Why should that be perplexing to a woman who is already betrothed to a man and you know, on the verge of you know, having the public wedding ceremony and reception, and obviously, you know, capable of having children after? Why is that a perplexing question? According to St. Thomas, you've just jogged my memory, it's perplexing because she had made a vow of perpetual virginity. She was, and her, how can this be since I have not known man, or do not know man, is really, how can this be since I don't yet know man, currently do not know man, and have made a promise not to know man. You see? So, yeah, it, you know, if you're engaged to be married, you know, and you're rock solid in that commitment, and you know, someone appears to you and says, you know, you're going to have a son and he's going to be the king of Israel. You're not going to ask the question, well, how can this be? You're going to presume, oh, obviously, when, once I get married, my husband and I, we're going to conceive a child together and that's where the king of Israel is going to come from. You know what I mean? So Mary's perplexity is somewhat, you know... Perplexity. Yeah, it's, yes, it's somewhat like... An exaggerated concern when it's when she she is already a woman who's betrothed, you know, and heading towards you know the formal celebration of it. That uh, supports a vow then. Mm. It does support a vow. All right. Well, I've finished there. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum apologetics lecture by Robert Haddad. For more Lumen Verum apologetics lectures, visit cradio.org.au.